Whitechapel, 1888 to 2020, a virtual tour. Hello. The reason I gave this talk uh, in April 2020 um, is because during the lockdown here in the UK, I have very little to do. <laughs> um, uh, I'm a writer and um, I have basically no practical skills whatsoever. So when a friend told me that she'd used the uh, media platform Zoom to teach friends of hers how to make scones, or to bake scones, I should say, um, I realised I had absolutely no skill whatsoever to do anything similar. But um, I, I can talk about the Whitechapel murders of 1888. So I thought I'd do that uh, uh, in front of people. Um, and here we are. So the purpose of this talk is, um, there isn't one set purpose really. It's basically to give an idea of what Whitechapel was like in 1888, um, the backdrop to the Whitechapel murders, um, and also to show what the area looks like then and now, and also to show the proximity, really, of, of where all the murder sites are. So I think if you don't know this, you, you might want to think that they're, they're far, far apart or they're closer together than they are. So my initial plan was to um, demonstrate just how close everything is together and really to discuss um, just the background that created uh, the greatest unsolved mystery in British uh, history. So this all started in 1888. Um, and what was going on then? So, well, first of all, uh, Queen Victoria was just finished, just completed her Golden Jubilee. Um, so she's 50 years into her reign at the time. Lord Salisbury was Prime Minister, uh, Robert Cecil. Uh, he was, uh, his tenure was... Uh, sort of sandwich really between um Gladstone, his great rival, um uh, before and after. And most importantly, as far as I'm concerned, uh the Football League was founded in March eighteen eighty eight. I put this in basically because there is no football in the UK at the moment. And as a man who goes to the football at least three times a month, shall we say, I'm beginning to feel the the pain of that. So what was going on in London 1888? Well, first of all, it was the biggest city in the world. Um, I, it's akin really to the Roman Empire and how Rome led the world. Um, it was the home of the empire. As I say, it was, it was enormous. And the slide here demonstrates what Hyde Park looked like around that time. And most people, when they think about Victorian England, they think about Victorian London, they think about pea supers and fog and what have you. But the more affluent thoughts is, tend to be this sort of thing. Um, horse-drawn um, carriages, etc., beautiful buildings, um, you know, as I say, the seat of the empire. Charles Booth was born in 1840, um, and he's really central to the current ripperology that we discussed today, because obviously without knowing it, he gave a scope, to, a, a reason to examine uh, what went on in 1888 in Whitechapel. He was born, like me, I'm happy to say, in Liverpool, um, and he objected initially to the idea uh, that was recently st stated around that time, that in 1886, I should say, that 25% of Londoners lived in abject poverty. That is a different definition from poverty. Abject poverty basically means that these people who had nothing at all, no homes, they, they just walked around with the clothes on their back, um, homelessness, um, no work, and absolutely destitute. 25%, a quarter, is a huge figure. He didn't believe it. So what did he do? 
He systematically studied every single London street and classified them by three criteria, income, occupation, and religion. Um, and it just, his work took years and years. He had an army of volunteers with him, one of which was uh, Beatrice Webb, who lent, later went on to form the London School of Economics. And uh, she's also instrumental in the uh, formation of the Fabian Society um, with Sidney Webb, which helped form the current Labour Party as well. So there, 35%. is actually 10% more than he actually than, um the, the previous statistical data decided. So 35% of London was based on, uh, was living in abject poverty. So how did he classify his map? Well, as I say, he walked around every street in London with his volunteers and decided they were anything from the lowest class, vicious and semi-criminal, right up to the upper middle and upper classes, wealthy. Um, so but it's, it's not a rule of thumb as such, but the darker the street um, classification, the, the more poor it was. So it basically goes from black to yellow um, and, and slides down from there. Um, and he, with his army, um, of volunteers went round every single street and the actual report builds up to 17 uh, volumes. And there it is, the Booth map of 1886. It's a phenomenal piece of work. I doubt that's going to be rivaled ever uh, for the work he did. Um, one quick look at it in its entirety there, you can tell that the most uh, darker areas tend to be towards the east of the city, northeast of the city, that is, um, and uh, over in the west end of the city, Lots of yellow and reds, far more um, or opulent than than, uh, than the other side of the city, indeed. So the empire, the home of the empire, half of it was poor. Well, 35% of it was living in abject poverty. I made a brief comparison here, a snapshot of the two areas, um, Hoban and Whitechapel. And you'll see in the image on the left there the, of, of Hoban, it's mostly red and it's mostly yellow, so it's a well-to-do area. There's, but there's still some areas which are blue, um, which is one down from, from the, the, the black areas, um, to show that there is some sort of um, rough areas around there. So it says Lincoln in fields there. This was Charles Dickens and the, and the legal profession's domain, really. But even then, it was still quite close to some sort of poorer areas uh, around um, St. Giles and the Fields, which is just north of Covent Garden. Um, whereas on the right you can see that much more, uh, this is Spitalfields, and there's a lot, lot of black areas around there and uh, and dark blue. Um, this is just my own theory, but the reason that there are dark red around those areas, um, basically going down Commercial Street and Whitechapel High Street, is because they were shops and therefore, obviously, they were making money. I can't say that's absolutely 100% correct. That's just my interpretation of it. So what was going on in Whitechapel in 1888? Well, firstly, the slide here isn't from 1888. I think it's 1890, 1891, maybe. Um, but as, as stated before, it's an incredibly poor area. There is an estimated pro uh, 100, sorry, 1,200 prostitutes walking the streets around this time. Obviously, these are not people like Heather Graham in the film um, uh, From Hell or anything like that. These women are absolutely destitute and the only thing they could sell were them themselves. The population was over 78,000 people in a very, very small area. So there's lots of overcrowding. Uh, there's lots of vermin. There's lots of ordure on the streets because the horses, not just horses. And Whitechapel had its own peculiar funk. Um, it really did smell. You knew you were in the area by the smell alone. And because of that, health and sanitation uh, was at a premium. And if you had a child, you were lucky if it lived above the age of five. 
there was a very, very high infant mortality rate. And in Spitalfields, around the rookery, rookeries of those areas, uh, there was the Doss House, and this is where all the victims lived around this area. This um, is a picture of the Victoria Home for Working Men, which is actually at 34 Commercial Street. Um, and later on, I'll talk about George Hutchinson, uh, involved with the Mary Kelly murder, um, a witness to, at least, um, in his own mind. This is where he lived on the corner, 34 Commercial Street, so he would have been opposite uh, the Princess Alice pub. Um, the Doss House was home without actually being a home. It cost 4D to, to stay a night there into a single bed. Um, it wasn't a bed as we would know it today. Sometimes, sometimes it was just a, almost like a cut out section of a floor with straw on it, um, which you would share with many people. Um, although they weren't permanent, people did tend to stick to the same one. And, uh, Catherine Eddowes, one of the Ripper victims, lived in the same one with their common law husband for eight years on, on Flower and Dean Street. Because of the poverty involved, they were often seen as criminal black spots. Things would turn violent. Uh, Annie Chapman had had a fight um, um, either in or near a Doss house on Dorset Street where she lived. Um, and Annie's a fine example of what happened to people when they reached the, when they lived in a Doss house. It was pretty much the lowest you could go. Um, and almost, well, I think all the victims, we don't know a lot about the last one, um, she would have been in a higher station before. But um, they were sort of their life was overtaken by ill fate and fortune, and they spiraled down to the Doss House, where of course they could only sell themselves to survive. So women and Whitechapel, as I've said, they're usually without income, um, uh, divorced or widowed. Annie Chapman again is is a prime example of that. She was living, she was working with her husband John Chapman in Windsor. She was dismissed, as was he, um, for their drinking habits. Um, but when she moved to Whitechapel, even though she's living on Dorset Street, she was surviving. She's receiving money from John she collected at uh, Commercial Street Post Office and was doing okay, obviously not spectacularly. But then John died of dropsy and uh, psoriasis. Um, and without that money, she sank lower and lower and lower. Alcohol was always a help meet, uh, be it in pubs or illegal coffee houses um, or even legal coffee houses. Um, Annie Chapman, again, is a great example living on Dorset Street where there was three pubs in one road. Uh, there was the, um, the Horn of Plenty, the Blue Coat Boy, uh, and, um, and Ringers, the Britannia pub on the corner. There are many, many pubs. If you cross the road from the Britannia, you could either go to the Queen's Head or you could go to the Ten Bells pub, the famous Ten Bells. Um, five pubs right next to each other. And Whitechapel and Spitalfields was like this. So many pubs. They did more business than anybody else because this is all these people had. Uh, they would often sort of get drunk just to get rid of the reality of their situation. And casual prostitution was the only way they could survive. And if you look at the poor woman in this picture here, that's quite a famous picture. Um, obviously, I can't prove this, but I imagine that the only way she could um, make money was to sell herself. And there was women 20, 30 years younger than her who obviously, it's a horrible thought to have, but... Uh, shall we say, had a, had a better chance of gaining income than she did. And that's the problem um, people of that age had in Whitechapel at the time. So let's go on to the Whitechapel murders. One thing I want to demonstrate here is the proximity of it all. The image here of, is obviously of the Charles Booth map of 1886, uh, and those are the murder sites for the five canonical victims. Those are the 
um, stated by Sir Melvin McNaughton, who said the Ripper killed five people or five people only. There's actually six murder sites on this. And also there's Goulson Street, which wasn't a murder site, but um, is significant to the story, which, of course, I'll come to. But I really wanted to demonstrate just how close everything was. So Books Row in the right there, the murder of Polly Nichols. You could walk, from, you used to can walk from Books Row today to Mitre Square, and I'd say about 20 minutes. I've never actually timed that, but I know Duckfield's Yard in the bottom there to Mitre Square is 12 minutes. I've walked down and timed it myself. So where did the victims live? Well, this is a demonstration of this. I will admit that um, it's not completely accurate. So the top left, the two together there, um, is Dorset Street with Annie Chapman and Mary Kelly. That's roughly correct, I'd say. The bottom uh, blue dot is uh, roughly around 18 Thrall Street, where uh, Polly Nichols lived. Um, and I will confess that I actually just put two dots on uh, what is Flower and Dean Street at the time, um, at 32 and 55 for... Um, Catherine Eddowes and Liz Strides, the women who were killed on the same night, 45 minutes apart. Um, they probably closer than that, I'd say. And this has led to the theory that they knew each other, um, the five victims. Not necessarily. These The dot houses and these streets would have thousands of people living there in one night. Maybe 1,200 people lived on Dorset Street of a night because these buildings were huge. There's every chance that they would see each other in the pubs because, you know, there are plenty of them around. But it's not necessarily the case that they knew each other. That can't be proved or disproved, of course, but it doesn't mean because they were that close that they knew each other. There's no record that they did. So the rookeries of Spitalfields, this is where they live. The image on the right there is of Flower and Dean Street. I think that was taken by, you can tell by the cars, I think it's about 1960s. You can see the size of the buildings there. And the main picture I put is to demonstrate just how close these buildings were. I took this photo in 2017 while on a walk with Neil Bell, and I like the fact that these two show where Thrall Street is and Florentine Walk as it is now. These buildings were, were, were built in 1984, um, and there was one victim on Thrall Street and two on Florentine Walk, so that's how close they were. So let's move on to the murders themselves. When we talk about the Whitechapel murders, we don't necessarily mean all the Jack the Ripper murders. There are 11 of them in the Whitechapel files, um, some of which aren't even in Whitechapel. There's, uh, there's one in Whitehall, for example, or close to Whitehall, um, which is just macabre, so it was included in the files. But the first one is uh, for of Emma Elizabeth Smith on the 3rd of April, 1888. She was attacked actually on the 3rd of April uh, at the convergence of Osborne Street, Wentworth Street and Brick Lane, and died the next day uh, at London Hospital. Um, she was attacked by three people. She survived that attack um, and went to tell uh, her, a friend of hers what had happened. She said the three people, one of them was a teenager. Um, it's unlikely that this will be a ripper killing, um, basically because he didn't really work in a team as such, or at least we, we suspect not. Um, and she had she died because she had... A, a blunt instrument inserted inside her. Um, I'm just going to leave you to your imagination where that would be. Um, horrible way to die. So where is Osborne Street? What, do, what does it do? What does it look like? The image on the right is Osborne Street in the Victorian era, not necessarily 1888, but um, you can sort of see how sort of tight the roads were and um, you know traffic down there was always just you know very very crowded all the time. And on the Charles Booth map on the left. You can see um, it's dark blue. Now, if you look at the 
Booth map, where it says Osborne Street, next to the O, is roughly where Elizabeth Smith was killed. Um, and the next slide will show um, roughly where that is. And that's where it is. We don't know for certain where she was killed, or, or I certainly don't. I don't know if extra any further research has been done on this. Um, but just to show the proximity, again, of the murders, the um, image on the left there, you can see the Universal House, where the big red brick building. If you walked past that and then turned left, you would come to Gunthorpe Street, which is uh, used to be called George Yard, where the next victim was killed. Um, four months later, it was Martha Tabram. That's how close they were. Um, you can see on the top right there that Wentworth Street is next to Brick Lane. And for some reason, I don't know why I think this, I think roughly that's where she was killed, or sorry, where she was attacked anyway. The bottom right picture I put in, because it actually leads on to a, a murder later on, um, or at least a factor in it. If you see in the background there, there's a white building. Um, I'd like you to keep that in your mind and memory for the time being, because that does become relevant. So the next murder is Martha Tabram on the 7th of August, 1888. She was killed by, because she was stabbed 39 times in a, a sort of tenement block in George's Yard, Whitechapel. She was found next to some stairs and two people at least had walked across her body on their way to work thinking she was just a vagrant who was asleep. Uh, they didn't see the blood because it was too, uh, very, very dark. Earlier that day, Martha had been with a, um, a a casual prostitute called Pearly Poll. They had met a couple of soldiers and took them off to their different areas. Pearly Poll went to Angel Alley, and we don't know if Martha went to George Yard Buildings um, to um, solicit her clients, as it were, um, but she was found there at 5.30 the next morning. Um, she was stabbed 39 times, as I say, but only one of those stab wounds killed her, which was the last one to her heart. She was stabbed with... Um, a, I think it might be two knives, one of which was a pen knife. This isn't really classified as a Ripper victim because she was stabbed and the Ripper, um, the Whitechapel murderer, I should say, um, slashed at the throat and uh, Martha wasn't killed that way. Before I move on to the next slide, I will say that for the early victims, I have included pictures of their autopsies. They were only used at the time. Really, it wasn't really a sort of a, as a, a tech, you know, a technique of finding out who'd killed them or anything like that. It was more just to identify who the people were. So I've included the early ones because it just looks like they're asleep. They're not particularly gruesome, but if you are of a nervous disposition, um, you don't have to look at the next slide. Um, for the later um, Ripper victims, such as Catherine Eddowes and Mary Kelly, I have not included the images. That's a personal choice of mine. And there's Martha Tabram, 1849 to 1888. Um, and for all the world, it looks like she's asleep in that picture. Um, that's a very, very detailed picture. And again, it, people think 1888 was thousands of years ago because in our minds, because we've moved on so much in the 20th and 21st centuries, it does seem like, you know, a completely different era. It was actually quite close in history to us. Um, and on the right-hand side there, uh, there's a there's a police illustrated drawing uh, of how she was found. Those things aren't always completely accurate, but we never can tell. So she was killed in George's Yard, which today is Gunthorpe Street. Um, someone that has put an RIP uh, MT uh, on the wall, not far from where the actual site is today. But more importantly, the image on the left-hand side. Now, bearing in mind that the booth map was created in 1886, um, 
you can tell uh, that he was ahead of his time, really, because that large black stripe, which covers the word half of the word George, is the building where Martha Tabram was killed. Um, so it really was criminal. Um, a very, very poor area alone. And you see Angel Alley is parallel to that as well, where Pearly Pole took her man. But Gunthorpe Street looks different today. They're not that different. So this is George R. Buildings. This is the uh, one of the maps used at the time. Obviously, it's completely different today. But if you look at the image on the left, you'll see the number two there, and that's really where she was killed. Albeit she was sort of killed at the back of the building rather than the front, as that suggests. And the image on the right shows what Gunthorpe Street is today, very close to Olgate's Tube. And that's Gunthorpe Street. So you can see, it, it's. I think it's the most atmospheric of um, all the streets in the East End. It genuinely looks Victorian. Um, the two images on the left are photos I took one a day, one of the night. Um, and you could be walking down that and think it's 1888, just as, as you walk down there, you can see the spire, uh, as it shows on the, on the bottom right there of, um, Christchurch Spitalfields. I didn't take the image on the, <laughs> on the right hand side. So I don't know what roll of the dice means, I'm afraid. Um, but the building that's uh, where she was killed where Martha was killed, you can basically see in the top image there, just as the men are walking towards it, that would have been where George Yard building was. George Yard murder site. This was found, I think, by John Bennett. I apologise if it wasn't John. Um, and that is the back of George Yard building. So you would have to, if you walked through those stairs, you'd have a view of the what is now Gunthorpe Street behind it. This was taken, I imagine, a, a yard at the back, somewhere near Toynbee Hall, which it looked out upon. And there is the murder site. That's where Martha was found, at the bottom of some stairs. So you can imagine a worker coming down, coming down the stairs in the morning, and as two of them dead, just walking past her. This is Stuart Evans's photo of George Yard in 1967, the front of the building. So you would have walked through that entrance there, and then you got used the stairs um, to go to the upper floors there, and that's very probably where the Ripper entered the building. That's if it was the Ripper, obviously. I think it was myself. And that, by a huge coincidence, is what Gunthorpe Street looks like today. I say coincidence because I seem to be standing on pretty much the exact spot where Stuart Evans was standing. Uh, I took this photo last year um, in September 2019, and the murder site was in, well, it would have been in that building. The man in the foreground is my friend Matt, who is keeping an eye out for the infamous Gunthorpe Street rats. Plenty of them around there. And so we move on to the canonical five, the first, the five, sorry, the five um, Jack the Ripper murders, if you want to call them that. The first one was took place on the 31st of August, um, the murder of Mary Ann Polly Nichols on the 31st of August. She was murdered and mutilated in Books Row sometime around 3.30 a.m. Mutilated, it's however you want to describe this. She was certainly cut on her abdomen. She wasn't quite as mutilated as, these, as some of the other victims, um, which a lot of people think is a sign of a growing escalation in the murderer's MO. Um, Polly, as she was known by her friends, had had a very, very hard life indeed. She was destitute. Uh, she was married to a man, had five children with him uh, called William. Um, she was she worked in Lambeth White um, uh, Workhouse for a while, she also worked for a family, um, and we have a letter surviving today, which she tells her, we think it's her dad, saying that, um, you know, she's happy where she is. The family are very nice to her. They're not drinkers. 
Um, she's left in charge today, which she's very proud of. Not long after that, though, she was, she left that house, uh, where she stole three pounds, 10 shillings worth of clothing. Um, she was horribly addicted to alcohol. And there is, uh, Polly's, um, body. Oh, and it was taken to the mortuary. Um, the image on the right there is factually correct. I wouldn't say the man involved, which I imagine is Charles Cross stroke Lechmere, um, the man who found their body. Um, he'd certainly saw a policeman and said, there's a body in Bookshire, you'll need it over there or something, something along those lines. He wasn't quite that animated. He was literally going to work. Um, and the policeman there is actually not just doing a policeman's job. He's actually a knocker upper. So these policemen would occasionally take on the role of knocking on people's doors to say it's time to get up and go to work. Cause obviously, cause Spitalfields market wasn't too far away. And a lot of people, uh, like Charles Cross, um, he would work close to that market. He worked in basically what is now Pickford's today. He was a removal man, a carter. So Polly was killed in Book's Row outside of Brown Stable Yards. I'm a bit surprised by the booth map area. I thought that would be a darker, there'd be a few blacker areas, but obviously there's lots of blue around that area. Um, it's on the, it, it's at the rear of Whitechapel, uh, tube station, uh, railway station as it was then. And, um, she was killed just in front of that, uh, well, basically at the end of the house. The building next to the end of the house is in the, in the, in the picture on the right over there. The board school is still there today, but it shows what books row. This obviously, this is in 1888, but it shows what the houses look like, almost like cottages, as it were. Nobody heard a thing. Um, Polly was killed, I say around 3.30 a.m. Um, Charles Cross saw her body and um, actually thought she was a sheet of tarpaulin because that shows just how poorly the light was around that time. Uh, he was joined by another man called Robert Paul. And he called him over and says, look at this, this woman's drunk. And she they couldn't tell that she'd had her throat cut. Um, somewhere just in front of those, um, just in front of those doors there for that central building. Who remembers this picture? I asked you to remember the building in the background there. That building, the white building, um, was once called the Frying Pan Pub. Um, and that leads on to, if you turn left down the road in front of that, that is Thrall Street, where Polly lived at number 18. The night she was killed, um, she was drinking in that establishment that night where she bumped into a friend of hers called Emily Mortimer, who tried to persuade her to come home, uh, back to 18 Thrall Street. And she said, I can't, I've got no money. Um, I've spent all my money, um, three times today on gin. Um, and she tried to get into that to, to the house, uh, the DOS again, but she was kicked out for not having the money. But she said she'd be okay because she just bought a, a new bonnet that day and she just needed one more client, 4D, um, to access her, her DOS for the night, uh, using the words, see what a jolly bonnet I've got. But that's the, um, the frying pan pub in the background. And that's the last time she was seen alive. And that's what the frying pan pub used to look like in, in, sorry, in 1988, the centenary of the, uh, the murders. And you can see that there's a street sign for Thrall Street. So she would have walked down Thrall Street there that night. She was last seen to be so drunk that she was clinging onto the building, uh, holding onto the wall. She was absolutely paralytic. Um, that today is the Shiraz Bangla Lounge, uh, in 2020. Uh, this obviously isn't my picture. Um, but that's what it is now. It's a curry house and a hotel, uh, on Brick Lane at the moment. But I would ask you to look at the thing above the sign there. I don't know what that would be called. A masthead? I'm not sure. Uh, the, the triangular sort of peaked top thing there. 
because that sign remains today. That picture was taken in 2017, and you can see that the frying pan um, motif in there as well from the days when it was the frying pan pub. I've included that just to show, again, how close we are to history. Polly Nichols would have looked at that sign more than once, um, if she'd a mind to. But that was the night she was killed. So, Polly's last walk. I've included this because Books Row is quite a distance away from Brick Lane, but not that far. I'd say that'd be about half a mile, if that. She was like, we know um, through uh, reports that she was last seen tottering, holding onto walls uh, towards Whitechapel High Street, where obviously she was expecting to find a client to get the money so she could go to bed. Um, so we know she didn't go down um, or Montague Street, which is parallel um, to the blue line there. Um, somewhere along the way from there, she met uh, her murderer, um, if you want to call him Jack the Ripper. Um, and again, just show how close everything is. When it turns left there, she's actually just off Valance Road. Um, and the Craves live just up that road, obviously many, many, many years later, um, at 178. So where it says the end, right next to the railway line there, was pretty much where Polly was killed. And that's the Books Rose murder site. So the arrow there has been helpfully provided, not by me. Um, that's where she was found. And the picture on the right is obviously the same picture taken from the other side. So what does it look like today? Well, the problem is we don't know because it's been, uh, for the last few years, the murder site has been obscured by um, Crossrail. Crossrail are building an extension to Whitechapel Station, which would appear to the left of these pictures. Um, so we can't actually get to the site. And of course, it's very, very wrong to um, stand and have a look over those boards to see where the site is. I myself have never been there. So yes, I did break the rules. I did put my camera over the top and had a look at really where the site was at the moment. It's very well guarded, this area, I should say, as well. Polly's body would be somewhere where that little orange box is uh, at the lower end, slightly to the left of centre. Um, that's where her body would have been. But as you can see, the board school is still there. And in 1904, the residents of Books Row asked if they could change the name to... Uh, sorry, 1892, I want to say. Uh, changed to uh, Derwood Street. Um, the image on the left is actually a Google street map with slightly bizarre coincidence is the fact that where that um, the arrow is, is actually where her body was found. So they changed the name of the street. And this isn't the only street that changed the name because they didn't like the connotation with the murders. The board school. The board school has changed dramatically down the years. Um, it's a proud building now. That's my photo on the left-hand side at the rear there. Um, I don't know who took the photos above, but I'd like to give them credit if they could. That's what the board school looked like in the 80s and 90s. Just incredibly derelict. Um, there's a video on YouTube of someone messing around inside there. It looks quite scary. Um, it's obviously been done up a lot more. It's protected, I think, now as well. And I imagine it's going to be changed into flats. Um, but that is still the most prominent building on uh, Derwood Street. Uh, and as you can see, the image on the right there was taken many, many years ago uh, with the murder sites just towards the left of centre there. The next victim, Annie Chapman, a week later on the 8th of September, 1888, murdered and eviscerated in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street. Annie, as I said before, had a really, really unfortunate story. I mean, when these women were called unfortunate, there's a reason for it. Um, as I said, she was married to John. Um, they went their separate ways. She went spiraled completely out of control and ended up living on the worst street in London. 
in Dorset Street in Crossingham's lodging house uh, and was found dead in the backyard of 29 Hambridge Street, which was a known area for uh, a known patch, shall we say, for uh, casual prostitutes to take their clients because obviously they don't want to be spotted by the police and arrested. Um, but sadly, it's also the ideal conditions for a serial killer to work as well. And that is the only photograph we have today of a living Jack the Ripper murder victim. So there is a picture of Annie uh, as in the autopsy. Again, she looks asleep and it's incredibly flattering to what, uh, what she actually looked like. So this is a photo of her on her wedding day to John. Um, when she was killed in uh, 29 Hanbury Street, because it was in a backyard tucked away from the rest of the street, it was also about somewhere between 5.30 and 6.30 in the morning. Um, she was absolutely ripped to pieces. He didn't touch her face, uh, but he cut her right up the centre uh, and removed some organs. And actually, for some reason, no one knows why, took her brass rings, even though they didn't, they were worthless, and also left some coins by her feet. Um, earlier than that, as you can see on the drawing there, I'd like to draw your attention to the image on the top right, which is a woman um, watching her and her murderer um, discuss, well, I imagine discuss the transaction of what was about to happen. Uh, that actually happened. That was Mrs. Long. She was making her way along um, Hanbury Street to see, uh, to get to work at Spitalfields Market. And she heard him say in a foreign voice, which usually means slightly Jewish accent or Eastern European, um, will you? And she said yes. Hanbury Street. The image on the top right, again, is in 1888. There's very few images from 1888. Um, but this is roughly around that time, a few years later, I would say. But even then, it, it's a good indication of what these areas look like. It doesn't look particularly busy, but you can see the state of the roads. Absolutely stinking. You can practically smell it. It's such a rough area there. And that was the road that uh, Annie met her end. The map there on the top left, um, you can see the big number four. That was where she was killed. That's in the yard of 29 Ambry Street, um, which led back onto, it says, a paper house there. This, um, uh, 29 Hanbury Street, this was taken in 1967. If, uh, now the reason I gave this talk is to people who are new to the case. So I apologize if you're an old hand at this thing, um, because you'd recognize these photos straight away. But if you don't, this comes from a film called The London Nobody Knows, which is frankly one of the strangest films I've ever seen. But it's fascinating. It's the actor James Mason walking around various places in London, not just Spitalfields and Whitechapel, but things like Chapel Street Market in Islington. Uh, there's pictures of him in Brick Lane uh, and in Camden. And he just walks around um, and sort of just talks about these very vague areas. And he decides to visit Hanbury Street. And obviously that's very, very lucky for us because we get to these magnificent photos again this is so what 80 years after the original murders and you can see the state of the building so they're pretty much how they would have looked in 1888 too i imagine obviously 29 is the number with n brill um who looks like a barber to me the woman he's talking to on the left there is the last resident of 29 hanbury street and it's a really strange thing he does he basically knocks on the door and when she opens he touches his cap and just says can i come in please and she says yes um, very strange, <laughs> but uh, uh, if you get a chance to look at this film, you can get it on eBay and things these days. Have a look; it's a really strange thing. He goes to the yard of Twenty Nine Hanbury Street, and he gives a little gives a little talk about this is where Jack the Ripper did his work, and it's very very obvious he's no idea of the name of the victim. Poor Annie Chapman. 
And that's where he would have walked, to the passageway. Um, so if that's the taken from the front door, and if you'd go around the side of the front door, it's very much like um, 10 Millington Place, actually. Um, you went around a little sort of sidestep alleyway down into the into the yard. So the image on the right there is a uh, breakdown of what the ground floor looked like. Um, and there's the passageway. I have to say that when it says cat's meat shop, that is meat to be sold for cats and not the meat of cats. Um, <laughs> in the yard there at the back, you'll see a leather apron was found here. That's been included because um, after the Polly Nichols victim, uh, sorry, murder, a few people thought, well, more than a few people thought that the a man called John Pizer, who was known as Leather Apron and had a history of threatening prostitutes with a knife, was actually the murderer himself. So Leather Apron was actually before the term Jack the Ripper was uh, used. Leather Apron was the name, or the Whitechapel Fiend was how he was described. And obviously there's Annie's body as well. We, there are no photos of it there, just as well, believe me. And that's the yard. That's what the yard looked like. She was found, uh, if you can imagine, on the big image on the right there, her head pretty much would have been under the door, uh, right next to the fence. Her feet would be nearer to us. Um, and that's taken, uh, the, again, those photos taken from above there, look probably by a crane, I imagine. Um, and what's so frustrating about this is there was a man, while she was attacked, there was a man called Albert Kadosh, who was actually walking um, into the yard and back again into his house, who could have just looked over the fence and seen what was going on. But um, because it was such a, uh, a, a usual haunt for prostitutes. He just thought that that was something that was going on there and went back to bed again. He could have caught Jack the Ripper. Um, Albert Kadosh. History has not treated him well. So what does 29 Hanbury Street look like today? Well, this is a bad example because I took these photos and... Uh, actually, no, I didn't take these photos, but this was uh, 2018. It's actually changed a bit more since then, but they put up the number 29 again. So that's roughly where the front door was. Um, the buildings were knocked down to make way for the uh, the brewery, the Truman's Brewery. Um, so actually, where the where her body was being found now was actually in a, in a private car park. Um, I think even that's changed now. So I I, I haven't actually been there um, since they were changed though. So and so we move on to three weeks later. So during those three weeks, obviously Whitechapel was alive with current talks of uh, Leather Apron or the Whitechapel Fiend. Um, but he was quiet for three weeks. And obviously we don't know why he went quiet because after this date, the 30th of September, he was quiet for five weeks, despite killing twice, um, <clears throat> officially to, in the canonical sense, um, in a week. Um, but the 30th of September scene saw him kill twice in 45 minutes. The first one was Elizabeth Strides, who was a Swedish woman, <clears throat> and then Catherine Eddowes, who was killed 45 minutes later. Um, Liz was killed in Berners Street, which is now called Enrique Street, and Catherine was killed in Mitre Square, just over the boundary into the city of London. And there they were, Catherine and Liz. Um, there are photos again, I've spurred you those. Um, Liz was the one on the right, and that's not the most flattering picture or even accurate picture of Liz, I've got to say. So let's begin with Liz Stride, uh, obviously killed on the 30th of September. She was murdered in Duckfield's Yard, which was like a sort of a recess from the main street, really, a stable yard. She was um, found about 1am. She'd been killed probably under a minute before that. Um, but she wasn't eviscerated. Some people now call her Lucky Liz because of that. She wasn't that lucky. Um, her body wasn't eviscerated. She's the only victim as well 
who was found on his side, all the others were left on their back. And she was killed in Burner Street. You can see, uh, again, that it's the, even though there are sort of bluish areas around there on the booth map, um, the reason those are, I'd like to think the reason that those are red is because they're commercial properties as well. So, for example, uh, next to the O and H there for John, which you can see in the map on the left, um, that's where the Nelson pub was. Um, and again, there's the images of um, the inquest. I've included this image just again to show that Duckfields Yard is slightly out of the way. It's nearer to Commercial Road than Commercial Street. Um, and again, you can see sort of the darker areas as well. So she was killed far more subtly than everybody else. That's not to say that it was miles away as such, because you can walk from Whitechapel High Road, uh, probably down Settle Street, um, quite comfortably there in a few minutes. It's not that far at all, but it's a little bit further away from the other victims. The image on the right was probably, I think that's the 20s or 30s, and that's Burner Street then. Um, that's not from 1888, because although there were two-story buildings, the building next to, next she was killed to was a, um, was a bigger building than that, which we're going to see soon. So what happened the night she was killed? Well, Liz, um, lived in Flower and Dean Street. That day she had, um, been in some cleaning. She went to, uh, the local pub to her, which is the Queen's Head, which we will see again later on. Um, and then it, it looks like she went out on a date almost. She certainly wasn't because, it was a bit of a schlep over to uh, um, where Duckfield's Yard was, but that's where she first came to when she met uh, when she arrived in London. Um, that St George in the East, that area is called, and that's where she pretty much almost landed, as it were. Um, but she'd been in a pub called the Bricklayer's Arms, and that's uh, that's the site of the Bricklayer's Arms. That's taken a few years ago. It's uh, it's now boarded up and has the graffito "Eat the Rich" sorry next to it, which I don't quite understand. Um, but she'd been in that pub there, so you can imagine that doorway. Um, she'd been seen with a man that night and she was kissing and cuddling him, having a good time. And as she left, two men, Mr. Best and Mr. Gardner, um, said to her uh, and her male companion, that's leather apron trying to get round you. Um, they meant it as a joke. There was no hard feelings. And they even invited them back in for a drink, um, which they didn't take, actually. Um, and on the right there, I, I just put a map of roughly where these areas were with my pretty poor PowerPoint presentation skills. So the black blob there is where the pub was, the Bricklay's Arms, and the red dot on the bottom left was roughly where um, her body was found at 1am. So she was killed on what was then Berners Street. In 1961, the name of the road was changed to Enrique Street uh, following the death of Basil Enrique, um, who is a great philanthropist. He set up um, lots of... Uh, um, I think it was boxing clubs for Jewish um, for Jewish boys around that area, um, and he was rewarded with the the name being changed. Um, I'm very proud to say that um, that road sign, which is broken there, I reported it broken. I'm very proud to say that, and it's fixed now. Um, and you can see someone stenciled. That's directly opposite there, where that Enrique Street sign is. Someone has stenciled the words Elizabeth Stride Street, 1843 to 1888, and they're they're accurate in that at least. So Burner Street, this is a very famous photo if you um, have a working knowledge of the murders. Um, this was taken from the corner of uh, Ferkle Street and Burner Street, uh, looking across it. So that would be the Nelson pub on the corner there. Uh, but more importantly, as I said, you know, it's mostly two-storey buildings, but the buildings which was found is slightly bigger. That was the home of the International Working Education Club Committee. I think I've got that right. 
um, uh, which was full that night. There were so many witnesses to this, uh, what was going on at 1am that, that day. Um, but more importantly for us, the, the wheel on the wall there, the cartwheel, demonstrates the gate um, to Duckfield's yard. So she would have been found facing towards that building there. So I've taken some images roughly from around that same site. So this is what it looked like in, in 2018. I've taken one in the day uh, and one at the night as well. And you can see the, the sign there for Fairclough Street and Enrique Street. Um, it's now a school, the Harry Gosling School. So the murder site, killed at 1am in Duckfield's yard here, body found by a man called Louis Doomshoots, um, who arrived, went through the gates on his pony, uh, a pony and trap, and um, the horse shied away because didn't want to stand on the body. He got off, lit a, um, a, uh, a match, and saw the body there. He went into the building to find out, you know, if he actually thought it was his wife, uh, went inside to say what was going on, and a lot of people think that while he was standing over the body, the murderer standing probably where the wall is um, because he'd been discovered because he didn't eviscerate her. He just cut her throat and lowered her to the ground. And that will be where Duckfield's Yard is today. So the central image there, welcome to Harry Gosling Primary School. The pipe there on next to the wall probably be the left-hand side of the uh, of the entrance. Quite a thin entrance, but obviously you could get a horse through there. Um, and I know somebody who goes to that school, who was being to that school, and they weren't told, incidentally, that this is where it checked the Ripper murder site was. So we move on to Catherine Eddowes, obviously killed on the same day, 45 minutes later. Um, she was murdered and eviscerated, and she really was eviscerated in Mitre Square, sometime between 1.30 and 1.44 a.m. Um, Catherine was uh, originally from Wolverhampton, um, she lived on Flarendine Street and she'd been arrested that night, um, sorry, at eight o'clock the night before, um, and taken to Bishopsgate Police Station and released at 1am and sadly for her and faithfully for her directly into the hands of her murderer. 1842 to 1888. There's a, uh, that's a Charles Booth map. Uh, there's no colorization in this, I imagine, because it's mostly commercial buildings. Um, uh, but there's a picture of Mitre Square there. The image on the right is from the Police Illustrated News, and I really like the fact that they spot the word square wrong. So, the walk from Berner Street to Mitre Square. He leaves Berners Street uh, with the body of Liz Stride behind him, and he, we don't know which way he went. When I'm there and I'm taking friends around, I always ask them, which way would you go, bearing in mind if he went through the short, the, um, sort of the, you know, the back street around the back, We'll probably have the police coming from Lehman Street Station uh, in that direction, or would you go onto Commercial Road and hide in public view? Um, pretty much everyone says um, they go through the back streets, uh, but I've decided to do this from Commercial Road. Just how far that is, not that far at all. It's a 12 minute walk from there to Mitre Square, and um, people tend to think that he met um, he met Catherine outside St. Botolph's Church, uh, which if there's a photo coming up in a second. Um, because that was known as Prostitute Island. So the prostitutes were allowed to walk around the church because it was an island. If they stopped, they could be arrested for soliciting. Um, but you can't really, if they're walking around you, they can't be, you know, arrested for that. And that was a very, very sort of heavy area for prostitutes, as it were. So easy pickings for him. But that's just over half a mile and about 12 minutes. I've certainly walked it in 12 minutes. Catherine Eddowes, to my mind at least, is the unluckiest of all the victims. 
This is a photograph of Olgate High Street. Um, and I said eight o'clock the night before, she'd been arrested outside 29 Olgate um, for being drunk and disorderly. Uh, she was taken to Bishopsgate Police Station uh, in the city of London. Now, we have to discuss the routes of police here and the boundaries of London. So the city of London is different from London, as it were. It's a self-contained city. It has its own police force. And you can see on the image of the right there that it crosses Oldgate. If you were arrested for being drunk and disorderly, for example, within the within the boundaries of the city of London, that there are exceptions, but they tend to throw you out at one o'clock in the morning. They think you you can't get into any more trouble. You're you're either drunk, you know, you're either asleep, or you can't get another drink somewhere else. If that happened in the east end of uh, the other side of Oldgate, which is the east end, you'd be arrested by Whitechapel H Division. And their policy was to keep you in overnight in either, shall we say, Commercial Street's police station uh, near the Ten Bells or in Lehman Street police station uh, further down the road towards the river. Um, you would be kept there overnight. And there you see the police lock-up times. Why is she the unluckiest victim, in, to my mind at least? Well, the red line there shows the boundary of the City of London and the east end of London. So the city of London is anything in the foreground in front of that red line near the bus stop there. And anything behind that is the east end of London. If Catherine had been arrested uh, behind that line, she very probably, again, there are exceptions, she very probably would have stayed in overnight and not met her murderer. That's not to say that there wouldn't be another victim in the Jack the Ripper murders because he wanted to kill somebody, probably because he didn't get... Uh, his hands on their organs, um, which is what he wanted. And you can imagine the rage he would have had of having to kill someone but not getting what he wanted. Um, so he probably would have killed somebody else. But for Catherine, um, fate decided that that was her because that's roughly where she was when she was arrested. That's very, very unlucky indeed. So she was taken to Bishopsgate Police Station. Um, at one o'clock, she was checked. They, they checked her cell. They saw that she was okay. And at one o'clock, she left. Um, she said um, to a policeman, uh, I'm going to get a right hold and hide him from my old man uh, for this. And very, very keeping with the PC <laughs> terms of the time, the policeman said, rightly so. You shouldn't be going out getting drunk like that. Um, and she just turned around as she walked out. She said, good night, old cock, and started walking up. Um, she probably walked up Houndsditch. And we can guess that she probably went to the Botolf's church where she met her murderer. And she was found at 1.44am in Mitre Square. The map on the um, left there um, shows the Great Synagogue. You can't miss it in that image. It's huge. Um, the road behind that is Duke Street. And if you can see, there's a gap there, a tiny little passageway. It says Church Passage between um, the Great Synagogue uh, and, the image and, the, and the building to the right of that. At the top of that, that's where she was seen by three men. Joseph Lavender, Harry Harris and Jacob Levy, um, who had left um, a club, the Imperial Club on Duke Street, the other side of that road. And um, they walked past it very quickly, so they weren't really paying much attention. Um, Joseph Lavender, it's, many people think he had the best sight of the murderer. Catherine had, um, uh, was facing them. The, the murderer was standing with their back to them. But they still, um, Lavender still gave a description, but said he, couldn't, he wouldn't recognise him again. And she had his hand on his chest, um, in an affectionate way. She wasn't fighting him off as such. 
So obviously they were discussing, you know, transactions, as it were. And if you go down into Mitre Square there, where it says the picture frame maker on Mitre Street, the body was found just in front of that. That image there from the 1930s, you can see it says Keely and Tong there. So that image was taken. You can see on if you compare that to the map opposite it, um, you can see that's standing pretty quite, probably quite close to the church passage. And um, that's the murder site. That uh, is a um, a very old picture of where Catherine was killed. She was killed sort of slightly to the left of where the um, the street is in front of the curb, I'd say. Um, and the, the image next to it again looks like 1950s or 60s and scooters. And uh, that's why Mitre Square has changed. And it's changed a great deal over the years. Then and nearly now, I say nearly now because I took the photo on the right and it's changed beyond all recognition since then. And I don't think I have a photo of it. There's, there's now a grassy area somewhere around Mitre Square there. The body um, of Catherine Eddowes was found just in front of that pipe, really, uh, on the extreme. So in front of the bench, slightly closer to the wall, um, and her feet would have been closer to us with her head nearer to the railings there. The central image was um, actually taken by a man who found who, that's taken in 1888. That was drawn in 1888 to show where the body was there uh, in front of Mr. Taylor, the picture makers. Uh, and the image on the right, again, is a picture of Keely and Tong there. Um, that looks again like it's been in the 1960s. I took both these images uh, on the one of them was on the night of the 2018 conference, East End conference. Um, that's this is just my guess, but I think that that's roughly taken the black and white image is roughly taken from where the Imperial Club would be. So that would be the view as they left the, the club and walked towards those three ballads. The left hand side of which it could be the right, I'm not sure, but the left hand side of which I've always thought is where um, Eddowes and the murderer were discussing um, the costs, I imagine. <laughs> I don't want to put that any other way. Um, where Castaneda's had his hand on his chest. So they were walking towards that at the time. Uh, and the image on the right is, again, is roughly where I think it was. That's a close to the same shot, but taken the other side. But um, I like that picture because I've... It's it's an accident, by by the way. Uh, I've included an image of um, Bottles Church in the background. You can see it's also called St. James's Passage now, where, of course, once it was called... Uh, church passage. I said earlier that um, Goulston Street is relevant to this case and it's not for a murder. Um, the murderer left no clues whatsoever. It, it, and people think it's, it's almost like a supernatural thing. He just disappeared completely. And at this point, if you can imagine that after the murder of Liz Stride and Burner Street, he's got Whitechapel H Division on the streets looking for him, literally closing down roads, trying to find where he is. From probably from Lehman Street and Commercial Street Police Station. When he crossed the boundary, he um, uh, excited the local police force and the City of London police force at, uh, at Bishopsgate, and he disappeared completely. So you've got all these police forces looking for him, and he just disappeared. But he did leave a clue. When he killed Catherine, and he... By the way, I'm going to the other, but he tore her to pieces. Um, he cut off a part of her apron. Um, we think to clean his knife... And he dropped it in Gulston Street. Uh, and he dropped it under, even, pretending it's which way you want to believe this, he dropped it under a piece uh, of graffiti on the wall, which stated that the Jews are the men who will not be blamed for nothing. Um, or he scribbled those words on the wall. And people have got various, um, a lot of people think that he did actually write that. And the fact that the, the apron is a little bit of a clue. 
I personally don't believe that. I think he's got enough to be going on with that night as he's killed twice. Um, I don't think he'd have time. The apron was found at 2.50 a.m., but her, Catherine, he killed Catherine roughly around 1.40 a.m. So what did he do for that hour? I don't know. We don't know how he left Mitre Square. I've just put that as just a rough idea of uh, so the start there is roughly where the murder site is. Um, so he's probably crossed um, 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 into Cross Houndsditch and then uh, Gravel Lane, Cree Church Lane, um, into New Goulson Street, and then across into um, into Goulson Street, not far from Wentworth Street, which is now Pettigoat Lane, incidentally. When he did this, he did something very, very significant, not just drop the apron. He went back to the East End. Um, for anyone who wants to try and think where the East End is, uh, you know, where, who the murderer is, was he a toff who come in from the city who fancied a bit of rough and a bit of, a bit of murder, thinking these people won't be missed? Um, I imagine he would have gone back into the West End. He didn't do that. He walked up towards Spitalfields, um, which makes me think he lived in Spitalfields or quite close or had a boat hole or something. Um, if you look at the map on the uh, left there, incidentally, it says St. Mary Axe. That's where the Gherkin building is today. So if you look at a map of London, uh, sorry, a picture of London, and you can see the Gherkin building, um, you're very, very close to Mitre Square. The Graffito, then, um, the Jews are the men who will not be blamed for nothing. There's actually different versions of it, to be honest, but uh, still makes no sense at all. Um, I've included that picture of Goulton Street, the street sign, because that's the first picture I ever took of a Jack the Ripper site uh, when I went investigating on my own once. Uh, the image on the left, um, I really like the fact that the Graffito seems huge there, probably three feet, and the fact that Charles Warren, who is supposed to be the man uh, on the right of the uh, the four gentlemen there, um, has to peer in to look at them. I've always liked that picture. Um, Charles Warren, of course, ordered the graffito to be scrubbed off. Uh, I've got some people think that was the biggest mistake of the case, or even he was disguising the murderer or protecting him in some way. Um, but we just had right. They just had riots in Trafalgar Square the year before, and it was a very, very racially aggravated area around there. And he he just didn't want to fight. Um, so I've got some sympathies with that. Goulton Street Market. Um, it's still a market today. Uh, the large building on the left there is Wentworth Model Dwellings, and it was there where the apron was dropped. Um, but as you can see, this is just the uh, shows just how busy the street would have been. Literally hours later, this is at three o'clock in the morning, and people there would have been people at six a.m. coming to set up the the um, the market for the following day. Martin Fido, who sadly we lost this year, um, has a theory about the graffito. He says that because it was a market area. Um, obviously someone's had an argument with a, a, a stall holder um, not got their money back for something which they think they should deserve and uh, someone's just written the Jews of the many won't be blamed for nothing as in you know you can't do business with these people there are people who would think that the, the message means um, us Jews can do what we want and where <laughs> other people think it's a criticism of the Jews saying look at them they can do whatever they want as well we'll never know it's got a double negative in it which is quite a cockney thing to do I personally agree with Martin Fido. I think it's got absolutely nothing to do with the murders, but feel free to draw your own conclusions. And there are the actual words themselves. That was written by, I imagine that was written by PC Long. That's certainly in the Whitehall file. You can see it's filed on the 6th of November, 1888. And it says, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed, will not be blamed for nothing across five lines. The image on the right there is actually taken, uh, is actually on the wall of the Happy Days chip shop, 
which is roughly the same. We don't know exactly where the writing was. It's somewhere on the door frame, um, but that would be very close to it. And obviously, uh, <laughs> they uh, a lot of people hide the, uh, the the Ripper activity or try not to talk about it. Um, and Happy Days Chip Shop very much works in the opposite direction there. So that's roughly what, uh, well, it is exactly what the location looked like in um, the 1950s. So you can imagine, I don't know exactly where it was in the door frame. It's never, it's not been recorded anywhere of 108 to 115 Wentworth uh, model dwellings. But that was the doorway where the apron was dropped. For some reason, I've always thought it was on the right hand side. Don't know why, um, where PC Long found it. He said that he, it wasn't there 20 minutes earlier. And of course, when he saw it, he actually thought his natural thought was that there's been a body somewhere else. So, he went round for it, and then he learned that what happened in Mitre Square, and that's what the image looks like today on the right of 2019. I think I've got the thing that might actually be on the right hand side of that. Sorry, the left hand side of that picture. But as you can see, it's got the same sort of are they gables? I don't know what they're called. Um, the crisscross pattern above them. So that's the same. That's, that's actually the same building. And so we move on to Mary Jane Kelly, killed uh, on the 9th of November 1888, murdered and eviscerated at 13 Miller's Court. Dorset Street in Spitalfields. The word eviscerated doesn't do justice to what the man did to Mary Jane Kelly's body. I've not included a picture of um, her murder site. It's the first, I think I've got this right, it's the first time ever that a murder victim had been filmed in the surroundings where they were killed. Obviously not aut autopsy reports, which as I said before, are as much about identification as anything else. Um, the picture does exist. Um, again, if you're of nervous disposition, and I know even if you haven't seen it, and I say don't look at it, trust me, don't. It's he, he, he cut her face off, um, and lots of other things as well. But that's uh, where she was killed. Now, this is a long time after. This is five weeks after the Mitre Square murders. Why did he wait five weeks? Some people think it's because he was injured, possibly in Mitre Square. Uh, other people think that. Um, uh, it was just too hot to handle. The, there were the, tons of police on the streets of Whitechapel around this time, uh, where other people think, and I'm one of them, that he saw this opportunity. This woman lived indoors, and obviously he'd killed everyone else outdoors, which means he could really, shall we say, go to town. And there's a picture of Mary Kelly. Obviously, it's not a picture. We don't know what Mary Kelly looked like. There's no surviving pictures of her. We don't know if her name was Mary Jane Kelly either. Uh, it was quite common for people to have um, um, pseudonyms around that time. Obviously, if you think back to the Books Row murder, discovered by uh, uh, officially by Charles Cross, but his name was Charles Lechmere. Um, this wasn't necessarily a um, anything to do with illegal behaviour as such. It was quite a common thing. In fact, Catherine Edwards gave her name as Mary Kelly uh, when she was arrested. Uh, Mary Kelly's the same as John Doe, I suppose, these days, or, you know, John Smith or something. So we don't know a great deal about Mary, but um, including her name, even if, uh, because she, everything we know from her, she told her boyfriend, Joe Barnett. Um, we know she's roughly 25. That's why there's a question mark uh, next to her name there. But one thing we do know is the woman on the left. That is factually accurate because the window next to her that you see is broken. That was broken with an argument which she has at 13 Millers Court with, her boy, with Joe Barnett. Um, and it was actually the means of which her body was found. If you look at the, um, the, the booth map on the right there, Dorset Street is all black. It's the blackest of black. She was killed roughly where the S is in Dorset, in the street of where Dorset Street is there as well. 
And it's right on Commercial Street. That's a really famous picture of Commercial Street. Um, you can see there that uh, there's a pub on the left-hand side. That's the Britannia pub uh, or Ringers. It was called Ringers because that was the name of the, land, the, the landlord and the landlady who lived there. That's on the corner of Dorset Street. So Mary Jane would have certainly been in there at some point. On the right-hand side, slightly higher, is the Ten Bells pub, probably the most famous pub in the area. Um, and that's Commercial Street. You can just see how busy it is. I've tried to find an image through, <laughs> through Google Street Map of a similar image, but of course I don't have the elevation there. But you can see that the Ten Bells is still on the right-hand side there. Um, and the building there is roughly where Dorset Street would be today. There's no road there at all. You can't go anywhere near it. It's, um, yeah, there's no access. Uh, I've just done a quick um, side slide as aware about the Ten Bells. Um, it's been in existence since roughly about 1755. Um, it's had various name changes. It was the Eight Bells at one point. Um, it's fixed next, right next to Church um, Christchurch Spitalfields, uh, where many people think the name comes from um, because of the bells inside there. And for reasons passing understanding, in 1976 to 1988, um, some bright soul decided to call it the Jack the Ripper pub because they thought the name of the serial killer was far more interesting than the poor people who he killed. Um, so yeah, that lasted for 12 years. Lots of organisations such as Reclaim the Night um, said that was a no-no. They weren't having any of that and they changed it back again in the in, 18, in 1988, the centenary of the uh, the murders. The pub is obviously still there today. Um, very much a different clientele, uh, shall we say. And uh, it's one of my favourites. It's um, alleged to be haunted. The worst street in London, Dorset Street, Spitalfields E1. The central picture there is probably the most famous street of it, taken in 1904 uh, of Dorset Street. Uh, you can just smell the poverty. Uh, Miller's Court would have been on the right-hand side of that picture. Um, the map on the left there shows roughly where, um, where uh, everything is, really. PH in that map means public house. So from left to right, that would have been the, the, um, the Horn of Plenty, the Blue Coat Boy, and then uh, the one on the right would be Ringers. You can see just um, Miller's Court there, just to, above the letter T, slightly off to the right. Um, Mary Kelly was killed in the uh, um, sort of, say, should we say, five o'clock to the M of Miller's Court, that little building there, that little section there. Um, and that On the right there, that picture was taken in the 1960s. Um, they changed the name of the street in 1904, I want to say, to Duval Street, to, again, to get rid of the image of Dorset Street as well as the Ripper. And in 1960, a man called Selwyn Cooper was shot and killed, possibly accidentally, in a, uh, a club called the Pen Club. So it's a very, very unfortunate street to live on. Miller's Court. This is a fascinating image. Uh, the one on the right is, shows the entrance to Miller's Court. Um, and that's relevant for a man called George Hutchinson, who I'll talk about in a second. But the image on the left was taken on the 9th of November, 1888. That is actually the day of the murder. Um, you can't quite see. I think uh, maybe you can see that the window is broken in the bottom right there. Um, that is the back door of, um, well, that is the back window of Miller's Court. Uh, the door was locked when the murderer left. Um, and once he'd torn it to pieces in the room, um, and Thomas Bowyer had been sent round, um, by the landlords, John McCarthy, to get the rent from a huge, she owed 29 shillings, which, by the way, is an astonishing figure. That's a lot of money to say, you know, 4D a day was roughly how much you'd get for a DOS there. 
Um, so he had a, owed a great deal of money. He he knew that the window had been broken, so and filled in with a coat because it was obviously it was November and it's freezing in there. Um, so he tore out the um the coat and got a look at what was going on in the bed where they found her body, and that image haunted him as you can imagine for the rest of his life. Again, don't look if you don't have to. George Hutchinson is a man who fascinates me in this case. Um, he's either the greatest witness to the Jack the Ripper murders, he's either, he either is Jack the Ripper, or he's an incredible fantasist. Mary was killed on the 9th of November 1888. George Hutchinson claimed that on the 9th, um, at 2am, he was walking north on Commercial Street towards the Ten Bells pub. He'd been he'd just crossed Thrall Street, um, when he saw Mary Kelly, she approached him and he claims to have given her some shillings in the past. Um, and she said to him, could you lend me sixpence, Mr. Hutchinson? He said, no, I spent all my money in Romford. Um, and she said, I'm sorry, I have to get on. And she walked in the direction of Lehman Street where I don't know how I know this, but, um, I don't know if it's correct either. Um, apparently it was her patch. That's where she would solicit. Um, as he began walking, he looked over to see where she was going. And uh, he noticed that she, uh, a man walked past her, a very, very well-dressed man uh, walked past her, tapped her on the shoulder, said something to her, uh, and she laughed, and they both walked up towards Miller's Court. So obviously she'd found a client, uh, and she was going to take him back to 13 Miller's Court. Um, Hutchison kept walking, uh, and he got as far as the uh, the light outside the Queen's Head pub. Um, and... Um, as they walked past, he didn't quite like the look of this man. And um, he, so he looked at him. The man pulled down his hat. So Hutchison stooped down to get a better look. And as he said, he looked up at me stern um, as he passed. Hutchison then followed them towards Miller's Court and then waited outside Miller's Court for 45 minutes while the man went inside. Um, he gave up. It was raining. Obviously, it's, it's the 9th of November, so it's freezing um, and left. That was the 9th of November. She was found the next day, and you couldn't move in Commercial Street because it was a, obviously it was a horrible murder. After five weeks, it was the new Ripper murder, and George Hutchison didn't say a word to the police. He went back on the 12th of November, three days later, and um, gave a statement to um, Edward Badham at Commercial Street Police Station where he, he, he told this story. Now, a lot of people don't, and one of them can't, to figure out why he would have left it for three days if he said he'd seen the murderer. And in his statement, not only did he say he'd seen the murderer, he gave what can only be described as a forensic <laughs> examination of him, including the colour of the buttons on his boots. Um, it was a dark night in Whitechapel. The street lighting was about a third of what it should be today. Um, and uh, a lot of people think that the reason he went in and gave that statement was because a woman called Sarah Lewis she gave a statement where she said she'd seen a man dressed as Hutchinson standing outside for 45 minutes. He'd obviously thought, hang on, that was me. It looks like I might have something to do with the murderer. I best go and do something about it. So there are people um, who think that he's the murderer. There are people who think he just made the whole thing up um, as a fantasist. My own theory is, and I've got no grounds for this whatsoever, is that George Hutchinson was walking down Commercial Street. He did bump into Mary Kelly. He'd been locked out of his DOS for the night, which is the Victoria um, Worker Men's Home, the picture we, showed, we saw earlier uh, when we talked about the DOS houses. Um, it was too late for his DOS, and he had to walk the streets that night. And he's obviously thought, 
I know Mary Kelly, if he did, there's actually no record that he did. Um, I think um, I was trying to sleep back and sleep in her room, keep up the cold. And also, let's be honest, you never know what else might be on offer. That's my own theory. And that was the statement he dictated to Edward Barnum, uh, Badham uh, at Commercial Street Police Station. You'll see that the um, signature is very, very nice indeed. And um, that's actually part of the, uh, I've just put that down on the, on the right there of uh, his actual statement itself. It's all online. You can see all this. So I did this in 2000 and I think this was 2016. I just did a, a break, a breakdown of George's walk that night. The top left, you can see the brown brick building in the background. That's roughly where, actually slightly behind where Miller's Court would have been. Um, next to that Lupita sign was where he claimed he had a chat with Mary Kelly. Can you lend me a sixpence? And the image to the right of that would be, um, where Mary supposedly met the Astrakhan man. He's known as the Astrakhan man because his jacket was trimmed with Astrakhan and he was carrying a small bag wrapped in American material, rather, he says. The Queen's Head pub, uh, that's my picture on the, as well on the bottom left there. Um, that's actually, when I first was interested in the case, that was just a white building. Um, they've done some work with it and found that the, the original um, livery, as it were, um, is still there. It's a beautiful building. If you're in the area, have a look at 74 Commercial Street. It's a beautiful building. That's where he said that he, uh, he examined the man's face. And that was the final murder. That was the final, well, that was the final canonical murder, at least. Um, there were murders that followed that. I'm just going to talk very briefly about these. Um, a woman called Alice McKenzie, clay pipe Alice, was killed on um, Old Castle Alley, Castle, Old Castle Street, um, in July 1889. And um, she was stabbed, slightly mutilated. And, um, yeah, she, um, she, was, she was left there. Some people think, including Thomas Bond, who examined Mary Kelly, the doctor, so that he thought that was a rip of a murder. Um, it was a good few months way after the Mary, uh, the Mary Kelly murder. I'm just going to say, though, that's quite close to where George Hutchison was living, and I'll leave that there. And then in September 1889, so nearly a full year after the Mary Kelly murder, um, a body was found uh, in Pinchin Street, just under the railway arch there, uh, with no limbs and no head. Um Again, that's included in the Whitechapel files. Probably nothing to do with Jack the Ripper, you imagine, being quite so late. Um, and that's where the body was found. If the image on the right, CCTV is useless. Um, I know for a fact that if you look through those windows, you can't see anything. Don't ask me how I know that. And finally, February 1891. So, you know, three, just nearly, well, two and a half years after the final murder uh, of Mary, Mary Kelly, the Whitechapel murders file came to a close with the sad demise of Frances Coles. She was found um, by PC Ernest Thompson, roughly on the right, if you walk through that archway there, roughly on the right. Um, she'd had her throat cut, and poor Thompson, um, she was still alive just, and he claimed that he could actually hear the murderer running away, but rather than give chase, um, he fell into H Division's um, code of conduct and had to stay with the body while she was still alive, and uh, Frances passed away. Uh, a man called um, James Thomas Sadler was um, arrested about it and uh, dismissed, um, but he was quite he was a sus suspect for quite a while. So, who was Jack the Ripper? No idea. No one will ever know. Um, I don't have a suspect myself. I find George Hutchins' story interesting, but I'm not saying he's the murderer. Um, but that's not to say that we don't know things about him. He was almost definitely 
local to Whitechapel. So he certainly knew his way around. He avoided, as I say, two police forces who were looking for him, throwing up roadblocks all over the place, and he disappeared. He knew where he was going. He knew that area very, very well indeed. More so, I would say, than someone who lived outside the district. I think he lived alone or he had a bolt hole somewhere in E1 because um, although it was, you, you see people walk, walking around with blood on their clothes and hands all the time because obviously this is the time of horse slaughtering. and um, But I'd say he almost lived alone because I think he'd have to talk to someone about it at some point. I put was insane. There's been a debate about whether he was insane or not because how would you define the term? But I think given the escalation from the version of Mar- Mar- Martha Tabram, if he did kill Martha Tabram, um, I'd say that going on from that to Mary Kelly in a few, in 10 weeks, that doesn't show an, an, an even mind as far as I'm concerned. But he almost definitely didn't look anything like this picture. If a man had walked around with a long cape like that, with, you know, a silk interior and a top hat, he would have been noticed. He would have been mugged, to be honest, as well. Um, this wasn't an area where, if particularly around Flower and Dean Street and Fashion Street and Thrall Street and Dorset Street, around there, it was a criminal area. It, it, it would have been spotted. And even though George Hudson said he saw a posh man dressed like that, I doubt it myself. And that concludes the tour. Um, I hope you've enjoyed that. Um, so thank you for your attention. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, um, my name is Carl Kopak. My main account is at the Sensi, which is a poem, a poem by Shelley. That's just me being pretentious and trying to be intelligent. Uh, my 10 Weeks in Winechapel account, which is a blog I wrote for Rippercast and narrated, um, is at JDR1888. And I'm also the host of a Sherlock Holmes podcast called Sherlock from Adler to Ambly, which is distributed through Rippercast. Um, so I'm at Adler too. I'd like to dedicate that talk to the memory of the victims because as it's been proved a lot um, slightly erroneously, I'd say this year that they receive less publicity than the pe- than the man who killed them all. These are real women. They were mourned when they died. Um, they're not just names through the dust of history. These are real people, and we should always remember that. Thank you for listening.